1 Corinthians chapter 4, <clears throat> Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and we've been over that, but since we've been off for a week, I kind of had to revisit, you know, where are we at in this book? Because it has three main purposes, I believe. <laughs> 1 Corinthians is writing to a very carnal church, a fleshly church, a church that has lots of division and arguments going on. Uh, people aren't wanting to hang out with other people. They, they're thinking they're better than the others and vice versa. And they're arguing about petty things that really in the church of God ought, ought to be things that are, we're over, we're past. We're not worried about anymore because we're all one in Christ. And if unity comes from our fellowship with the Lord personally, brought into the church corporately, then there ought to be no divisions. But like every real church, there are divisions. When I studied physics in uh, college, one of the things that I found out is that when you study physics, it's a mathematics, science-based course. But when the problems, they give you these problems, they never account in the wind or the extra friction from real life. It's all ideal conditions. And so what Paul is writing to the Corinthian church about is, hey, the church doesn't get to be planted or to grow in ideal conditions. There's going to be weeds come in that will need plucked. There's going to be a lot of work involved. There's going to be people that come in that you disagree with or in, in past times haven't had much luck hanging out with. They've been people you don't like at all. Uh, their former lifestyle might have you know, met up with your former lifestyle and there might have been some arguments going on. And so what Paul is dealing with is the church of God planted in an ungodly spot. And the people, unfortunately, are bringing the ideals of the culture around them into the church and it's causing problems. And so Paul's trying to address them very directly and clearly and let them know, quit it. But he's getting more specific that, than that. So in the first part of this letter, he lets them know that he's been made aware of the troubles that are going on in their church. He says, hey, I know what's going on. You know, if your parents come home and go, hey, I already know what's happened here, you get a little bit nervous because you're like, oh, I was going to tell you what my version of it was. And Paul says, no, I know exactly what's going on in this church, and it's time that we need to have a little family meeting. And then number two, uh, this letter is written to reveal to them, not just that he knows that they have problems, but to reveal to them the reasons for the problems. You know, knowing that people have problems is one thing, but then coming up with solutions for those problems and dealing with them directly is really, you know, it's, it's the part that helps. You know, anybody can walk into a church and go, look at all the problems here. Anybody can do that. But we need people to come along with solutions. So Paul does this. He doesn't just leave them with their problems and go, well, deal with it, see you later. He says, I, I want you to work through these problems. Any good family that has problems, they have them. But then when they deal with them and they give each other grace and they grow through those problems, that's when the family unit becomes knit together solidly. So Paul says, I know the problems, here's the problems that you need to deal with, and here's what's causing the division. And then in the third part of this book, he writes about, he writes to answer some of the questions that some of them have given. You know, the letter that he gets from the household of Chloe not only has, hey, we've, we're having problems, but it also has, hey, some of the people in the church have questions about following Christ. What does this look like in our culture? What are we supposed to be saying? How are we supposed to act? What does it look like to fellowship in the body of Christ? How are we to take the Lord's Supper? So some of those things are the things that he teaches them about. We, uh, you've said we've got gifts of the Spirit, but how do we exercise them in a way that doesn't distract from Jesus in the services? 
And so Paul deals with these things. But today in Romans chapter 1, excuse me, chap, uh, sorry, we, we were in Romans for a while. Today in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, I'm going to give you a simple outline. But before we give an outline, I'm going to read the first seven verses. He says, let a man so consider us, speaking of Paul and the other leaders of the church, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred. Those are big words for me. These things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one another, excuse me, on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So Paul is talking to an issue that they had. One of the major reasons that they had divisions in the church is because they were in their own little cliques. And it wasn't because of hobbies that they had. It wasn't because of what part of town they lived in. That could happen here, right? The, the cliques that they were in were because of who they thought was the best pastor or leader in the church. Some of them, in the first <laughs> chapter, they were saying, well, I follow Paul. He was the one that planted this church. And there were some that said, well, I follow Apollos. Now, we don't know anything about Apollos, but Apollos was a very eloquent speaker. When he spoke, it was just like someone was painting a picture right behind him. You just got it. And some of them said, well, I don't follow either of those guys. I follow Jesus, which sounds very spiritual. But what they were saying was, I'm not going to fellowship with you because you follow Paul and I follow Jesus. I'm more mature than you are. And so as they were having divisions about these things, Paul says, hey, maybe you guys are looking at us in the wrong way. Maybe you guys are misunderstanding what we came to do, who we are, what our purpose is, who sent us. Because if you realize that we were all sent by one God, you'd stop having divisions about what we say or how eloquent we are or, or how much you like, you know, what kind of foods or music that we like or someone else. So Paul addresses this. So let's start in verse 1. He says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, we're in verse 1, and let me give you a little heads up. I'm going to be in verse 1 for a little while. Uh, we will finish the seven verses, but there's so much to unpack in this first verse. Because what he says here is he says, Let a man, let each one of you in the church who have these divisions consider us, which they've already done, they've kind of gotten, you know, here's Paul and here's Apollos and they've rated them. They put them on a scale. And we have this happen today. People can listen to Bible teaching 24-7 on the radio. They can go on TV and watch somebody. 
They can download podcasts. And you have these people that are going, well, this guy's better than this guy. And this guy's better than this guy. But what we need to realize is that these men were each called for two purposes. One purpose is to be a servant of Christ. And the second purpose is to be a steward of the mysteries of God. Now, the word servant there means minister. (laughs) And it also means under oarsmen. And that's why I put a picture of you. And I don't know if you can see very well. But here's a ship that was around during the time of the Corinthian church. And on top of this, did you guys ever read the comics on Sundays? I don't know if it's still in there or not. But you ever read Hagar, Hagar the Horrible? Uh, it's a little bit different than this one. You have the guys rowing that make the ship move, and then you get Hagar sitting in one end. Sometimes they want to pick on his weight a little bit, and the ship's like tipped down in one end, and they're like, hey, we can't even get our oars in. But that's what I thought of when I read this picture. It would, read this, and, and I looked at what the word meant for servant, for minister. And it, and it meant under oarsmen, an under rower. And he's saying saying here that we as men of God in the positions that God's given us are under oarsmen. Each one of us has a view of the captain of the ship. See, a lot of people think of the pastor or the leaders of the church as the captain of the ship. They're the ones leading. But that's not the case. What the pastor or the leader of the church is, is he's an under oarsman. And he's in a way, linked arms, linked purposes with all the other under, under oarsmen. So for Apollos and Paul, they're some of the guys sitting on the bottom. And they're all looking up to the captain for direction. The captain says, row right, the right side rows. The captain says, row left, the left side rows. This has happened before with me and my dad. We've gone uh, canoeing. Now, if you know anything about canoeing, you know that it's not easy. It looks easier than it is. If you see somebody that's well-seasoned in it, they're just going straight, and you're like, anybody can do that. But then you get in there with your dad, and you've never done it before. And you don't go into it the mindset of, I'm going to listen to my dad because he has done it before. You say, I can figure this out. So he's got one direction to go in, and I've got another. And he starts giving directions, and I'm going, what are you telling me what to do? I'm in my spot. You do your thing. But the problem is, is there's only one boat. It can't go in two directions, right? So if we go both row in opposite directions, what do we do? We spin out. The church of God can spin out and not get anywhere if people won't have one mind. We've been given one mind in Christ. We all have one purpose. We all have different functions. Some of us might be rowing in the front. Some of us might be rowing in the back. We're all going in the same direction. That's the idea Otherwise, we'd have two, to, two boats. But the reality is, is sometimes the church doesn't go anywhere, not because God doesn't want it to, but because those who are leading the church aren't looking in the direction of the one they're accountable to. They've been called to be servants of God, under oarsmen of God, looking to the captain of our salvation, the one who gives direction. Now, if each minister, each leader in the church will look to their leader, the captain, Jesus, then here's what happens. God's purposes are fulfilled and the people are blessed. Now, in this case, Apollos and Paul and all the other leaders, they were following the captain. But the church at Corinth, you know what they said? (laughs) We're only going to follow one of them. But if they'd have looked up and realized that those captains were all following the same Jesus, 
those under oarsmen were all following the same Jesus, then what they'd realize is that their argument was vain. It was for no purpose. They were pitting these leaders against each other, and they were forgetting that the body of Christ goes beyond one leader or another. And I love that because what God is trying to do through Paul here is speak to them how they can be unified. If they'll realize that their leaders really are just under oarsmen, then they'll be more likely to focus in on what God wants to do with them personally. So we think about ministers in the church and, and automatically our mind goes to the person that's either employed or leads or has a practical, visible role in the church. Uh, perhaps somebody that uh, is a full-time employee kept to do the preaching, the teaching, the counseling, to run the copy machine, to take care of the grounds and the building, to make all the hospital visits, to mow the grass, etc. But this is not the biblical view of leaders in the church. This is something we've got from a traditional view. Many times what happens is that the deacons are really in charge of the church and they tell the pastor what to do. Well, that's not how we do it here. And let me tell you, it's not because the leader is uh, infallible or can't mess up. But the idea is, is that the pastor or the elder would get to spend time with the Lord, to get vision from Him, to be faithful to the vision that the pastor gets, and then to lead the people, to shepherd the people, to take care of the flock. Another view of a minister of Christ is anyone who by virtue of the gift of the Spirit is a preacher or a teacher of the Word of God. And while this is part of the position that God gives us in places, it's not all of it. It's not the only things that the pastor's called to do. In a sense, we're all ministers of Christ. So there's another viewpoint of a minister of God. Uh, In a sense, we all are. Every Christian is in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Do you know that God's commissioned you to be his ambassadors? Wherever you go, whatever you say, it reflects back on him, especially if people know you're Christians. And they can sniff it out. They know. They're looking for you to mess up. So that can be overwhelming, and at the same time, it's not supposed to be. We're all his ambassadors, and we represent the folks that we know, we represent them to God. There are unbelievers in your life that stress you out. Know that your purpose is not to change them, it's to pray for them. To represent them before your king. To say, Lord, I can't stand this person, I need you to love them through me. And as we pray for them, we'll start to love them. And I've seen this happen over and over again. And then, at the same time, like a priest, we represent man to God, and then we also represent God to man. We go and stand and spend time with Him, and then we come back and we we represent Him to them by the way that we treat them, by the way that we speak to them. And so God's given us this ministry as a church. And Paul is saying here in today's passage, though, he's talking about those who have the gift of preaching and teaching as the function given to them to serve the body of Christ. But the word he uses is, again, the idea of an under oarsman. And so he used, why does he use this word? Now, in our version, it says servant. It says minister. But he's using Greek, and Greek is confusing. It's There's so many different meanings for the word. They can change the way that the word ends, and they can say something completely different. What Paul is doing as he's teaching the Corinthians is he's saying something to them that would make the most sense. If I make a deer hunting 
or a Black River analogy, I'm speaking to a, a crowd that can understand that. We've all, many of us have been in contact with people that do that. You know, those are the people that I can reach because those are the things I can relate to. Paul's writing to the Corinthians. The Corinthians live on an isthmus. They live in a place where there's a way to portage through over land for a short distance to avoid going around a huge peninsula, basically. And so what he does is he speaks to them something that they would have a visual of. Many times Jesus did that. He would use parables. He would talk about shepherding. He would talk about building. He was talking to people that did those things. To the Corinthians, he makes an analogy using a ship because every day they saw ships coming in and out of their port. And then they also saw these ships going through on land. They'd roll them across on these different logs and they would take them across for a fee. So that's why he's using this word. Not because it's the only way to describe it, but it's a way that he can describe it that brings it home to them. But the Corinthians, so for the Corinthians and for any church of Jesus Christ, it's important that we notice that Paul was teaching them that a pastor, a minister of any kind, is first and foremost to be a servant of Christ. Here's what happens. Many times, because of the fear of man, because of uh, the, the wanting to be popular, wanting to not be hated, what pastors do is they, they start to listen to the congregation as to what they want to hear. And what Paul's telling them here is, I didn't come to tell you what you want to hear. I came to tell you what God has given me to tell you. I came to impress God, not you. And some people take this to the extreme And uh, what my pastor told me when we first started this church was he says, here's the deal. I want you to get up there and I want you to weekly study the word and teach it to the people. These are God's precious sheep. Feed them, tend to them, watch over them, warn them. He says, but don't whip the sheep. Don't get up there and start wailing on them. They don't need that. Their own hearts already condemn them. Teach the word of God and pray that the spirit of God would meet them where they're at. And that's something I struggle with because I see things and I see tendencies and I want to speak to them. But what he said was just teach the word of God faithfully and let the Holy Spirit convict them. And so that's why we do what we do. But Paul is saying here, a pastor, a minister of any kind is first and foremost a servant or an under rower of Jesus Christ. Not the congregation. He's not to... He's not to you know, kind of bend to their whims or their, their fancies. He's not uh, the government ship. He's not supposed to get up and, and do whatever the government tells him to do. Uh, he's not a servant of the opinion of men and women of their community or politics. He's not the servant of it, or excuse me, he's not the, the, the servant of the, his boss at work. Everything he's supposed to do, he's supposed to be faithful to the Lord in it. And if he'll do that, if he'll please the Lord then the Lord who will judge his works at the end of his days will be pleased. And whether it went well for him in his workplace or in his family or not, it doesn't, it's inconsequential. Uh, Their judgment is not the one that will stand against us. It will be the Lord's. And uh, I think this is interesting because I was reading in Hebrews chapter 12. And in verse 1 and 2, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here's who we're aiming to please. 
He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He talks about his example. He says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus please his father? Think about it. His mission was to make disciples and to die. What does his disciples do while he told them, hey, I'm going to give my life for the sheep. I'm going to be put to death on the cross. What did his, what did his, his closest friends, his disciples tell him? They said, don't do it. You're not going to die. You're going to be our king. But he didn't entrust himself to man. He entrusted himself to the opinion of God. And I love this because Jesus was unwavering in his mission that God gave him to do. And his mission made no sense to the world. His mission made no sense to those who were following him. Even though he told them over and over again, I didn't come to serve or to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for all those who will be saved. And so, here it is. We're living to please Jesus. And there were a few who noticed this about Jesus. His willingness to do everything he could to follow the leading of his Father. To do his will alone, not anyone else's. But there was one man who was not even an Israelite. He wasn't even a Jew. He wasn't even in the faith. He noticed that Jesus was a man not who had authority or who lorded his authority over anyone. But he noticed that Jesus was a man under authority. Jesus himself was an example of an underworsman. Jesus, while he was on this earth in that body of flesh, he submitted, he surrendered all of his kingly power. And he says, I came to do the will of the Father. That's what it says in John uh, chapter 6, verse 8, I think. So, <clears throat> there was another man who was called by God to lead in the church a man by the name of Peter. He was one of Jesus' disciples, right? Now, what do we all know about Peter? Do we all think about how great he was? Or do we think about his biggest failing? We're apt to do that. We remember wrongs. We don't remember rights. You know, we, even in our own hearts, we condemn others. But what Jesus called Peter was a rock. Not the rock, but a rock. And his confession afterwards, he said, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Now, when Jesus said, hey, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to be put to death, what did Jesus say? No, you're not. Peter said that. Yeah, Peter said that. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Thank you, Cindy. He said, he said, you're not going to go to the cross, Lord. He goes, well, I'm going to be put to death. I'm going to Jerusalem. He goes, well, I'm not going to forsake you. I'll go die with you, Jesus. Did Peter do that? No. But Jesus wasn't doing it because Peter was keeping up with him. Jesus was doing it to please the Father. Sometimes we go to church or we serve in some way because other people are doing it with us. And what Jesus showed us was an example of what it means to follow the Lord even when it's going to hurt and even when no one else goes. Many times when God calls you to do something, no one else will go with you. But we've experienced that kind of refining. As we came down, we moved down a couple years ago in September. And when we first came down to start the church, there was a big group of people coming with us. They were here every week. They were blessing us. They were praying with us. They were serving with us. And then the time came where they kind of backed off. And for good reason. They were praying that the Lord would raise people up within this body that would serve and fill the roles that they were filling. 
Now we're still praying for that in some ways. And it's okay because whether anybody goes with us or not, our motives aren't, we're not doing it because it's popular. We're doing it because that's what God's given us to do. And that's okay. Because as we do that, the Lord continually reminds us, hey, are you doing this because other people are? Or because I sent you? And we're doing it because he sent us. We want to please him. But God had to kind of refine our motives there for a little bit. And sometimes that happens in different areas of our lives. When I was in high school, I played certain sports because I had friends that did it. And, and then one day I found out, hey, I'm not good at wrestling. I'm not good at track. I can't throw a shot put very far. I'm not a long distance runner. It's okay. I play tennis. None of my friends played tennis. But what I found was that I had a group of people there that were playing tennis. Next thing you know, we were friends because we had a like interest. The same is true in the body of Christ. When God calls us out of the darkness into the light, we have all these friends. And all of a sudden, we don't have common interests anymore. Or at the very least, we have interests, but we know that some of those interests need to change. And so the Lord goes, I want you to follow me even though there's not a group of people going with you. Perhaps down the road, they'll come with you. They'll, they'll follow your example. But until then, follow me anyway. I'm going to give you a new group of friends. And those other friends will still be there. But for a time, you're going to need to kind of separate darkness and light until you're healthy enough to interact with them and be mine and not of the world. And so the Lord is showing this, and I kind of got off on a tangent, but in uh, John chapter 21, let's turn there, because I wasn't finished with Peter. John chapter 21, verse 15. Here we have Peter. We all know about him. He denied the Lord when the Lord, in our mind, needed him the most. He needed somebody to be there with him. And after he denied the Lord, he was kind of downcast. They went back to fishing. And then Peter shows up on the shore close to their fishing boat after he resurrected from the dead. And he shows up and he says, hey, what are you guys doing? And immediately Peter notices, hey, that's the Lord. He, he takes off his cloak. Or maybe he puts, he puts on his cloak. He jumps in the water and he swims to shore and he gets there and they have breakfast. Jesus has a bunch of fish gathered up. And he cooks them breakfast and he sits down with them. But he specifically takes Peter aside because he wants to restore Peter. He knows that Peter has been through a rough time. He's been praying for him. He told him, he said, Lord, he said Peter, you're going to deny me a couple of times before the rooster crows. And of course, Peter said, no, I won't. He goes, but that's okay because I've prayed that the Lord would sustain you, that you would continue in the faith anyway, even after you fail. So in John chapter 21, verse 15, we have this conversation between him and Peter. It says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I just jumped off the boat and swam to shore to see you. Isn't that evidence that I love you? I, I kind of interjected that, but I mean, that's what's going on in his mind. I just jumped off a ship. I left all my buddies. Here I am. Of course, you know, he had breakfast and I was hungry, but he showed up. And then it says there, he said to him, uh, feed my lambs. That's what Jesus told him. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, well, then tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? 
And Peter was grieved because he said to him, this, he asked him this question a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself, you walked where you wished, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish to go. And this he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So why did I read this passage other than, I've thought about this passage a lot in the past, but it's interesting as we're thinking about the ministers of God, the people that God calls to shepherd his flock. Peter, of all people, many people look to him as the first pope. I don't believe that. But he was no doubt a leader in the early church. And as Peter was called, he was called right after he failed. Not because he did something great and God promoted him. But he failed. And the Lord says, you're broken. I need to speak to you and restore you. I need to heal you. So, Peter, do you love me? And when, the, when Peter says, yes, I do love you, three times the Lord says what? He says, tend to my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Take care of my flock. Now think about that. If you had a rich nobleman, a king, do you think he calls the, the higher-ups, his noble friends, and says, hey, why don't you take care of my livestock? Why don't you feed my sheep? Why don't you shovel the, you know, the, the, the stall out after they've taken a poo in there for weeks? No, that, that's dirty work. What do you do? You call a servant. You call an under-oarsman. And so Peter is a, is a great example of another man that God called to be a leader, a proclaimer of the gospel, but a feeder of sheep. Something that's very <laughs> humble. I don't know about you guys, but more times than not, as a Christian, I don't think of myself as some great conqueror putting on a shield and carrying a sword and just doing battle for the Lord. I think of myself as somebody that's like, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And he's like, shovel the stall. Do the simple things. Do the things that will bless someone. And more times than not, they're not going and taking that hill or making a big proclamation on the news. Or it's, it's serving God's sheep. And so Paul is telling them, you guys are looking at us as if we're something great. And what I want to tell you is that God has called us to greatness by humbling us and telling us to do something that no one else will do. No one else sees it as something worthwhile. And so here we are, back in 1 Corinthians. And Paul is telling them, I want you to consider us as humble servants, as under oarsmen that are really just to follow the example of our great shepherd. And in 1 Corinthians 4, back there, he says two things. I want you to be servants and stewards. And so as stewards, a steward is the idea we get when we think about a treasurer. He has ever played Monopoly some of you. Some of you have ended the game well, and some of you walked away going, this is taking forever. I like Monopoly Junior because it's shorter. You know, you play real quick, there's not a whole lot of money, not a whole lot of property, you can win pretty easily. Regular Monopoly is for, it's, it's not for the light of heart. It's not for the faint of heart. But in there, you have someone who is what? The treasurer. And their job is to take in the money to the bank and to divvy out money. So if we're called to be servants of God, under shepherds, servants, then the pastor is also called to do this, to treasure 
what God gives him to treasure, the mysteries of God. Not the things that can't be found out by anyone, but the things that have to be dug into and mined out and, and found and then treasured in our own hearts personally first. And then as stewards of God, as treasurers, the other thing we're called to do is to hand it out. To take the mysteries of God that we've learned, like this one I'm teaching this week, to take it into myself, to learn it for myself, to treasure it, and then to take it also and hand it out to others. Now, we think about that. We think about, well, that's the pastor's job. But it's also your job to treasure the word of God more than find silver and gold, to take it in. Not to dig for things that nobody's ever found out before. You won't be able to find one. But to dig in and find something that you didn't know before. And to treasure it as if it's literally the only meal you'll get for the day. To eat on it, to chew it, to get all the nutrients out of it, and then to go and feed others. To take the the word of God, the bread of life, the, the fountain of living water, and to pour it into others, to share it. It doesn't have to be some crazy truth that no one's heard before. It can just be something that probably everybody else knows, but they need reminded of. And that's what Paul's telling them. We're to be stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And that word just means to be trustworthy. You got somebody that's, that's a banker, somebody that's a treasurer, and they're not trustworthy. You don't want them keeping your money, do you? You don't want them handing out money. You know, we just had in the paper this week somebody that was allegedly basically embezzling funds uh, from a funeral home. They were taking the expenses, the pre-planning expenses, and they were kind of taking some off the top for themselves. And, and they were being dishonest. That's not trustworthy. The Lord says, for those who are called to be stewards, they're to be found faithful, to be found trustworthy. And sometimes here's what happens. Someone will spend time in the Word of God They'll keep it to themselves and they won't hand out the portion they're supposed to hand out. They're not trustworthy. They're not faithful. And at the same time, sometimes they just don't take any deposits. They don't spend time with the one who can give them a deposit. The Lord, the source of it all. So it's required that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself for I know of nothing against myself Yet I'm not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. And so here in verse 2, excuse me, verse 3, how are we, how is the minister or the leader in the church to judge or to view those who, are, who God has placed over us as pastors and ministers? How are we as the church, how is the congregation to judge those who are called to lead the church? And so I, from verse 3 and 4, I came up with these three conclusions. They're not to judge by how the congregation judges them or feels about them, whether they've been faithful or not. They're not to judge by how an individual judges them, whether they've been faithful or not. And they're not to judge how they judge themselves, whether they think they've been faithful or not. Do you know that pastors and leaders of the church, they try to judge themselves? But most of them, they get done teaching a Bible study and they walk out and they're just the whole, they're not thinking about you or what they think that you did this week. They're thinking about all the things that they forgot to say, didn't say, said wrong, all of those things. But what Paul's saying here is none of those things that I judge myself about even matter. It doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter what the congregation thinks. It doesn't matter what the government thinks. It doesn't matter what people on the sidewalk that have been walking by might have heard think. Who does it matter what it 
Who? What does it matter who thinks? <laughs> See what I mean? I'm going to say it wrong. The idea is, who are we aiming to please? Let me ask you, who are you aiming to please? If you're going to miss a service, who are you worried about what they think? If you're going to uh, go and see something that you aren't sure whether or not you should see it, who are you worried about pleasing? If you said something wrong this week and you stumbled somebody, who are you worried about pleasing? Who are you trying to please with your life? We get caught up in the people that are standing right next to us and we forget about the one who's chosen to reside within us. And because of that, we feel condemned, we feel beat down, we feel like we failed. And by the way, by the way we probably have failed. But if we have failed, who have we failed? The Lord. And just like Peter, he knew we were going to. <laughs> Don't be condemned by your own judgment. Don't be condemned by the judgment of those that are around you. So we think, okay, well then I'm not accountable. Who cares what anybody thinks? If there's a godly person around you that says, hey, I, I think you need to, need to be checking yourself before you wreck yourself, take heed to that warning. But if you're aiming to please the Lord, you won't need that warning. You'll already be condemned about, or convict, sorry, convicted about that. You'll know that you need to change. And that's what Paul's saying here. I don't even judge myself. The great apostle Paul, he says here, I don't even judge myself. He says, for this reason, verse 4, I know of nothing against myself. If I truly judge myself, most of the time I give myself a pass. I'm an unjust judge of my own motives. So then in verse 4, he says, I know nothing against myself, yet because I don't know anything against myself, that doesn't justify me. If you start trying to check your own motives and you're like, I think I did pretty good this week. Recognize that that judgment doesn't do you any good. Because no one cares what you think about yourself. The Lord's not impressed with that. He's not fooled. He says, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsel of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. God will sift through the stuff. He's going to look at the fruit in your life. I'm going to restate something I've probably taught before, and maybe I haven't. But I was talking to a guy at work this week, and we were talking about judgment, God's judgment. He talks about the day of judgment. Now, there are two judgments in Scripture. Now, I'm not going to go there today, but there's two judgments. There's one for the unbeliever. That's the great white throne judgment, where basically the Lord's going to go, what have you done with my son? And they're going to go, well, I did this. They're going to try to weigh their good works against their bad works. And they're going to you know, make excuses. And the Lord's going to go, depart from me. I never knew you. And then there's the other judgment. It's the Bema seat judgment. And the word means mercy seat. It's kind of like the Olympics, where they come up, they have all the results of the Olympics, and then there's this big board that looks at how each competitor competed. They check their drug test, they check their times, they check all that stuff. And then, at that judgment, it's not whether or not they raced or not, or whether or not they're allowed to compete or not. The judgment there is based on what kind of reward they will or will not get. And so for us as Christians, the judgment is not whether or not we go to heaven. The judgment is what have we done with what God has given us to serve him? Have we been the under oarsman that he's given us the ability to be? Have we been the steward of the mysteries of God? Have we 
divvied them out to the people around us. And then he gave us those things to divvy out. He gave us that servanthood. And then, and somehow in God's economy, even though he gave us all the resources to do everything we did, he rewards us based on how we use those things. He gives us the supplies, he gives us the calling, and whether we use them or not, he rewards us based on how we use them. That's crazy. God does it all, we get a reward. But here's what we do with the reward. We walk up to the throne of the Lord, and with all the other saints, he's given us these crowns of victory. And Nobody in heaven's sitting there going, look at my crown, look at my crown. Mine's got more jewels in it. They're all going, I didn't do anything to deserve this. The Lord did it. Here you go, Jesus. And of course, he's got so many of them. Nobody's putting them on his head. They're just throwing them at his feet. That's what we'll spend eternity doing. I'm not one to covet, but I do want to have as many rewards for what I've done in this life, not for my own namesake, but so I can give glory and honor and magnify the name of the Lord in heaven. I'm going to worship him by what I have to give him. And everything I have to give him will all be because of what he first gave me. There will be no boasting. Then each one's praise will come from God. Verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have given to you figuratively, and I have transferred them to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up. The idea is to get a, head, a big head on behalf of one against another. Don't compare us to each other. We're both serving the same Lord. Stop bragging about who you follow. Hopefully you're following us as we follow Jesus. And then he says, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? If you did, if you did, in, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? The idea there, just again, saying anything that we have, anything that you have to give to the Lord, recognize that you first and foremost, you had to receive it from someone. You're not the source. Jesus is. And so this morning, let me ask you a couple of questions. Who are you aiming to please? Who do you give the glory to when you do well? And are you surprised when you fail? God's not. And he's not taken aback when you do. But when you will put your trust fully in him, here's what will happen. You'll fail, you have good days, and then you'll have bad days when you fail. But either way, God's going to get the glory. And he wants to not just see what you're doing or what you're saying. He wants to see why you're doing it, why you're saying it. And if you're doing it to please him, the ship's going to go in the right direction. People are going to get saved because they're going to see Jesus in you. And you're going to have joy and peace knowing that you're pleasing the Father even when everyone else is mad at you because you rubbed them the wrong way. I rub people the wrong way all the time. I would much rather rub them the wrong way for the right reasons. So this morning we're going to take communion. There's going to be way more than we need. So as you're coming up here to take it, we're going to do a worship song. There's way more room at the Lord's table. Live your life aiming to please the Father and we'll fill up the empty seats. But also, take this time to consider, are you doing with what God's given you what He's called you to do? Are you being a servant of Christ 
Are you being an under oarsman, just being faithful to do whatever he gives you to do? Whether it's being a, a teacher in the school, whether it's being a student in the school, whether it's being a son, a daughter, a mom, a worker that has to go off for a long time and come back. Yeah. For me, it's going all day, feeling like I need to be down here. And Lord, he just keeps reminding me, just be faithful where I've called you. I've been called to be at US Tool. Where are you called to be when you feel like you should be somewhere else? You know, where are you called to be? Where's God sending you? Don't look to everyone else for direction. He's got, he's already given it to you. Just be faithful where you're called. Be stewards. Take what God shows you and hand it out to others. The world that we live in is looking for hope. We are the only ones to carry it. He's given us this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. So hand it out. So let's, uh, let's end with a song of worship.